I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. January 6th. Thank God I'm Canadian. Dad got sick. Thank God I'm Canadian. Trump is back. Thank God I'm Canadian. Roe v. Wade overturned. Thank God I'm Canadian. Another school shooting. Thank God I'm Canadian. You've said it. I've said it too. And I mean it. Thank God. And that's about as emotional as I get about this country. It's about as deep as my patriotic feelings go. Insert shitty American thing here. Thank God I'm Canadian. But is that really enough? I mean, especially considering the fact that we just usually end up doing some milder version of whatever America does anyhow, you know, four or five years later. Because that's what we do. Ron DeSantis denounced the upcoming World Economic Forum. All these elites come in, they run everything. My ministers will be banned from participating in the World Economic Forum. When you report fake news, you are the enemy of the people. When journalists asked about PPC connections to the alt-right, Bernier published their email addresses. Everything woke 
turns to shit. Enough with the woke All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats. We will never give up. You'll never take back our country with weakness. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. They do Obama, we do Trudeau. They do Trump, we do Polyev. They do Fox, we do Rebel. Our shootings follow theirs. But less frequently, you say. That's not a lot of comfort if you were one of the people at that mosque. Okay, but what about healthcare? Our sacrosanct healthcare? Well, what are we doing to it right now? We're Americanizing it, privatizing it. Look, the world has begun some massive kind of transition, and anybody who tells you how it's all going to shake out is deluded or lying to you or both. But what I can say with confidence is that if you think our wide, unprotected, imaginary border is going to save us from whatever shit show is roiling just a few miles south of us, if you think our mild little middle power is somehow immune to the thrashings and crashings of the most powerful empire in human history, you're dreaming. So what's the plan? Well, have no fear because an American is here today with answers. Well, a former American. Rob Goodman was a speechwriter in the U.S. House and Senate. Now he's an assistant professor of politics at Toronto Metropolitan University, where he teaches and writes about populism, rhetoric, and the history of political thought. He's got a new book called Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. And he joins me here in our Toronto studio in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Bridget Sterling, Elizabeth Hall, Margaret Ovenel, Lisa Ann Hamill, Becky Kontz, Stephanie Noel, Diane Coyle, and Florian. My name is Florian. I'm an actor writer from Toronto, and I support Canada Land because in a country where monopolies and media concentration is even worse than I realized before listening to comments, I want to support independent quality journalism and be part of the solution. As an immigrant in Canada, I've learned so much about my new country, and as a francophone, j'aime beaucoup le travail d'Emily Nicolas, et j'espère avoir encore plus de contenu en français qui ne se concentre pas seulement sur le Québec. Part of the reason I wrote this book is because I want to issue an early warning. I want Canadians to realize to the extent possible that this is a real problem. It's a real threat. And the kind of democratic erosion we're seeing in the U.S., the, the kind of political dysfunction we've seen in the U.S., there's no reason that those same forces couldn't come here to Canada. In fact, in many ways, they already are. So it's not really not here it's, it's more of like, not here, please. <laughs> a lot of people have asked me like what the proper inflection for reading the title is. A and I guess I'd have to say that it changes every time I look at it. Sometimes I'm feeling very uh, uh, defiant and, and very much like a good Canadian nationalist. And I say, not here. And then other times it's exactly the way you described it. It's a more fearful, not here. And that just changes based on what's going on in the news. It changes based on my mood. It changes based on what's on the front page of the CBC or the New York Times. But I guess at the end of the day, 
I would say uh, one way to explain it is you know, not here if we're really committed to not here, uh, not here if we really get our act together and realize there's still time to shore up uh, what's left of Canadian democracy. I think that to figure out what our strengths are is going to also take some examination. And when I, when I cracked open your book and it started with an examination of Z versus Z, I was like, oh boy, mm-hmm. not here is going to be tricky. Um, you're right that it seems laughable that the letter Z, I say Z, or the Queen or the Quarter could save us. Later on, there's some conversation about uh, Coffee Crisp. And there are days somehow that it seems as if these trivial differences might save us. How? <laughs> How could, it's so thin. It's it is. so weak. How yeah. could those things save us? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's the thing that I struggle with, uh, trying to be a new Canadian, recognizing that our political problems and our political system and our political culture, and, and notice that I'm saying are because I, I take it seriously that we've, we've moved here for good. I, I think of myself as an immigrant. I think of myself as someone who is raising a family and putting down roots here. I think those differences at the same time seem very real and sometimes very insubstantial. To live in Canada is to be exposed to an onslaught of American culture, American politics, American news, uh, American geopolitical fear, all these sorts of things that are part of the nature of living in a country 10 times uh, smaller uh, than your biggest military ally, biggest trading partner, uh, biggest source of, of culture and news and so on. So I really get that it's an uphill struggle. But I guess part of the reason I hold on to these things, even though they're a very thin read, is just from my own psychological perspective, I I need something to convince myself that there is an alternate future possible here, that there's enough in the way of Canadian difference that we can latch onto in order to say the same kind of forces causing American democracy to degrade, the same kind of forces uh, that have brought Trumpism in the far right uh, to power uh, and, and possibly to return to power very soon don't have to play out the same way. And, and those little cultural differences, the, those, those silly little things like the way you pronounce the letter in the alphabet, coffee crisp bar, different people on our coinage, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, of course, these things are all symbolic. But yeah, symbols really matter. Symbols really help us gather up a sense of our identity. And part of the reason I latched onto the Z is because this is a thing that for me is really associated with my kids. I talk about in the book how I've been singing the uh, ABC song um, as as sort of a bedtime routine for my kids uh, since our oldest was born, uh, more than eight years ago now. When we started singing that song, and and she was born in New York when we were living there and I was a grad student in WXY and Z, when we moved it over here to Canada, uh, first to Montreal and then to Toronto, where where our home is now, I figured, well, we're here now. Uh, I better change it to WXY and Z. And part of the reason I held on to that was because it's just this little sort of daily reminder that you're in a different place where things don't have to play out. And just psychologically for me, the the anger, the stress, the fear, all the things that we're going through watching U.S. politics, these little differences have been a bit of a psychological refuge to me. And I, and I know that they can be silly, and I know that that's not really much to hang a politics on, but it points in time its work for me. And I certainly don't think that that's an actual kind of substantive solution, but it's something to build on, the, the sense of difference or identity that when we look a little bit more about the political culture and history of these two countries can become a little more substantial. But, but for me, it was just a place to start. Do we have enough beyond those little symbols to actually construe of ourselves as something different enough to know what it is we are protecting? And that does bring us to this question of nationalism, which 
is a really tricky one when you add the word Canadian to it. Like Canadian nationalism almost like it's like an oxymoron. And there's a catch-22 because the thing that I like most about being Canadian, I, we did this kind of a joke book, but I kind of meant the jokes. When I was promoting the book, I said, I'm proud to live in a nation that is ashamed of being nationalistic. You write about nationalism and pride. And pride seems like a completely anti-Canadian feeling. I don't, I don't want to feel more proud of like my nation state. And I think that when we're only just reckoning with things that we should be ashamed of, like rightfully ashamed to just reckon with the fact of unmarked graves of indigenous children should make us ashamed at a time when perhaps we, we need to find our pride. And we can only be proud to the extent that we don't know about, that we kept ourselves in the dark about that. You write about this very explicitly. And I, I love this. You write that pride in one's country needs ignorance in the way that crops need shit. So how do you circle that square? How do you get to a form of Canadianness that inures us, that like makes us have a shared sense of what it is that we're protecting from whatever it's the rise of fascism or whatever the hell it is that we're talking about that is popping up in the States? How do we get our act together? Do we need to be better patriots? Do we need to be nationalistic Canadians? Well, I don't think that's quite what I'd suggest in the book. Uh, and I think it's complicated for all the reasons you pointed out, for the reason that Pride in, in nation and in, in nationhood is not a very Canadian feeling, and I think that's pretty well attested in history. And also the fact that this is just a multinational place. When you say Canadian nationalism or a Canadian nation, people uh, inevitably ask, which nation are we talking about, English Canada or French Canada or the indigenous nations that were here before settlers? Like, all these things mean that Canadian nationalism is, as you say, a really hard circle to square. So part of the reason that I go down a different route in this book is exactly for that reason, that I think it's really hard to both know one's history, and I don't think that's just the case for Canada or for the U.S. or for any settler colonies. You know, history is is ugly. History is full of, of mass death. History is full of genocide. That That's very much the case here as it is anywhere else. So I think pride's a really tricky thing to, to, to sell, and rightfully so. And I feel that especially as someone who thinks of myself as someone on the left. I think the right has had an easier time embracing notions of, of nationalism or the nation or, or pride in the fatherland or all these sort of kind of quasi-fascist sort of ideas because they're a lot more consonant with the way uh, the right thinks about the world. Uh, but as someone who doesn't want to think about the world that way, how can we still think about what's worth preserving in this country's uh, history of democracy and democratic traditions? You know, so one of the things I do in the book is sometimes I say, well, let's put nationalism aside. Let's just use the word localism. And I get that just changing a word doesn't change a history, and changing a word isn't an argument. Changes but th the feeling, yeah. though. It changes, changes the, the feeling. feeling. Like how people feel about Montreal, the people who live in Montreal, or how people feel about their neighborhood mm -hmm. does stir some of those feelings. This is my community, and I give a shit about it. And, and I think it's easier for us to get there than it is to like, like this is my country, damn it. That's like, uh, it makes me feel weird. Yeah, for sure. It's concrete in a way that maybe pride in one's country isn't. And I think that... You know, just think about the root of the word, uh, and this is a dorky point, but but nationalism comes from the word for birth. Uh, you're born in a certain place. You're born as a certain kind of people. Um, localism comes from the word for place. It's connected to a sense of where you are, a sense of belonging, a sense of the history in a place, a sense of being part of a place that, that could theoretically be really expansive. And I think Canada has been more expansive than in most places. So what I'm beginning from, and I, I think a lot of people on the left struggle with this, is this idea that it's okay and normal to be attached to where you find yourself or where you're from or where, where you live, 
But I think especially in Canada, a country that, whose sense of identity is really under this constant barrage of American culture, this sense of pride in our place or, or valuing our place without glossing over the ugly parts of the history can be a way of filtering the sort of influences that come into this country, saying that you know, this sort of hyperpolarization or this sort of right nationalism or xenophobic politics, these things aren't really authentically of this place. They're, they're not part of us. We can stigmatize them in a certain way as not part of the story we want to tell about ourselves. And is it always an objective story? I don't think politics is made up of objective stories. One thing I talk about is the idea that politics is made up of myths, a lot of myths. And that doesn't mean that myths are falsehoods or that myths are ways of lying. Myths are just common stories that we use to orient ourselves in politics, to, to do collective work together. And the myths that we tell about ourselves and about our history here can be ones that help us be better at democracy or ones that make democracy even harder. So I guess what I'm trying to do in the book is pull together and I say pull together because I don't think you can make up a myth from scratch, but pull together the resources in the political history of this place, both the good parts and the bad parts, that show why there's authentic reason to believe that democratic erosion might not happen here in the way that it's happened in the U.S. And that's, I think, the best that we can do. There's no, there's no certainty here. There's no assurance that it's not going to happen here. But I do think the stories we tell about ourselves matter. I think they have to be honest stories. I don't think they can be stories that gloss over things like indigenous genocide, things like the history of, of uh, settler colonialism in this country. I think those are very much a part of the way I see this country's past, and I write about that in the book. But I also think that this is a country that's been much more open to the idea that there isn't just one real people here, that there isn't just one people that gets to define what it means to be Canadian. You know, so when you go back to that point where you said that you're proud to be part of a country that's embarrassed of nationalism or however exactly you phrased it, I think that I see Canada in a very similar way, except I want to be a little more explicit about that because I think it can really help Canadians push back against what's beginning to happen in this country. So we need better myths and more constructive myths, and you write that we need to get better at self-mythologizing. And I know what you mean. It's kind of frustrating when what we do here is tell stories from Canada, and it's interesting what happens to a lot of people when you, you start telling a story, and in the same way that you could you could tell a story and the character, like, you know, emerges from Grand Central Station and it has this mythological status, as soon as you say, they pass the CN Tower, they're like, boring, like, it, it's... Uh, a, a strange self-loathing prejudice that just immediately classifies anything Canadian. And I'm, I'm guilty of it as anyone else, even though I'm cursed to tell these stories and try to get people engaged with them. I mean, they're amazing stories. And then you have this uphill battle as soon as you mention Canada. I get that. I get the need to get over that somehow. And yet when you do bring up some things that are more meaningful and substantial than a coffee crisps bar, you talk about things like how we have fewer guns how our kids are marginally less likely to be crushed under student debt or health care bills. You write, it's the excellent public schools, which is an overstatement. They're just not as bad as the public schools in America. Everything that you write that is substantial is in comparison to how much worse it is in America. So is that like how we're going to do this? Just like, how are we going to carve out a new mythology or a sense of ourselves or figure out what we protect? Because if all we are is, as you write, what we refuse, and, and historically, all we've refused is to be quite as bad as the states, because we do what they do. We just don't do it quite to the same extent. Is that going to be enough, or do we need to actually figure something different entirely out? Mm-hmm. 
First of all, I think you need to be secure in your differences before you can actually build on them. I, I, I don't want a world where Canada is consistently looking over its shoulder and saying, at least we're not the U.S., at least our democracy isn't eroding like the U.S. And I think if we can be secure in that, then it's easier to reach for more. That dynamic really does infuriate me. So I do want something more substantial. And I guess part of what is more substantial to me is when I think about the political dynamics of, of this country uh, and of you know the rich democracies around the world, they have all had public spheres that have been hollowed out by, uh, by neoliberalism, by the retreat of the public sphere, by pulling back on uh, social programs that improve people's lives, by pulling back on public goods, by the decline of labor unions. All these things have happened all across the rich democracies all over the world. And of course, you know, they happen at different rates. I think I, I said to someone else the other day, well, we're all sinking. We're just kind of sinking at different rates. But I do think that one difference is that in Canada, we've had a sort of stronger set of social goods in more recent living memory. And I think that's something to mobilize around. I think it's something that, um, you know, w when Doug Ford threatens to uh, you know, revoke uh, collective bargaining rights and, mm -hmm. and override the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that people showed up like crazy. The QP education workers uh, shut down Queen's Park. There are tens of thousands of people there. You know, organized labor could credibly threaten they were going to escalate to a general strike, which is like unheard of. And it was believable enough that Ford backed down. Uh, these kinds of things, I think, happen where there's a bit more of an institutional memory of, of what it was like to have a bit more of a functional public sphere, a bit more functional public goods, a, a bit more functional organized labor. And all these sorts of things, again, don't make Canada categorically different than any other country in the world, but there's something to build on. There are things that have not quite got to the point of erosion that they are in the U.S. So, no, if Canada is consistently patting itself on the back on not coming in last place in whatever horrible chart it is of the week, if that's another result of my book, I will not be very happy about it. But if a result of the book can be to say, you know, look, we, we have a lot of resources that have built a successful, meaningful, effective public sphere that, that had social programs uh, that, that were in many ways the envy of the world, there's no reason other than political will why we can't rebuild these sorts of things. And I think one thing that we have going for us that, that yeah, the U.S. doesn't is more living memory. There are more people alive who remember what it was like to have more functional health care, transit, education systems. You, you can go on down the list. I think that's a time-limited resource, and that, that's part of my sense of urgency is, again, there, there's nothing categorical that means that, that Canada isn't going to see a similar erosion of these public goods. But, but I value them so much, not just because my kids are in public school, not just because we play at the park down the street uh, every day or at least every weekend and enjoy the free ice skating rink and all these sorts of things. It's because all these things are, are training grounds for democracy. They're, they're where you meet your neighbors. They're where you practice preserving things in common. They're where you can come together with other people and not have to constantly status check yourself and check your income and your, your profession and your whatever kinds of barriers of entry that, that human beings set up around one another. Public goods are one of the few places in the world where those things don't apply quite as much. And they're not incidental to democracy. They're not a kind of thing that's nice to have, but kind of separate from the main issue of democratic erosion. You know, democracy, I think, erodes because these sorts of public goods that help us practice democracy have been eroding for so long. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity 
and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. I want to take this into a more practical kind of a conversation because, you know, these are interesting topics like to discuss, could we be, you know, building on the social safety net that we, if that's what we pride ourselves on, could we be doing better? And should we, like, what do we base our national identity on? But they can get a bit abstract. And we're talking about an urgent situation. It's very possible that Trump will win again. You write about authoritarianism that it has its own glamour and appeal. And slowly and steadily, without any of us explicitly acknowledging its influence, and many of us loudly disclaiming it, it will shape our sense of what is possible here and what is permissible here. We've seen this happen. We're seeing it happen. Uh, Just as sort of Trudeau follows Obama as our version of a neoliberal uh, centrist, Polyev, some years later, steps in as the, you know, the Canadian version, a bit of a milder version of, of a Trump. And what are we going to do then? Because when you tell me the solution is to reject these things, to, to, to return to our conception of ourselves as some kind of lesser version of a Scandinavian country and build on those things to be more unlike the United States and really almost like, I, I, I don't want to exaggerate here, but to, to deny like, hey, it's all myths anyhow. So let's, let's deny that this populist right-wing stuff is a part of us. Mm -hmm. And let's choose the other myth and build on that myth. That strikes me, I saw that happen. I saw center-left Canada deny what was happening with the Freedom Convoy. I saw people say, oh, this is all foreign-funded. It's not really us. These people, they don't even know who we are. They're they're, they're citing the First Amendment. There are um, foreign actors. They're they're really a conspiracy theory. And there was significant foreign funding, but most of the funding came from Canada. To deny the existence of that movement, to deny the existence of that grievance, to deny that while you and I may agree that there's no such thing as like a real Canadian, those people knew what a real Canadian was. Mm -hmm. 
they had a very clear idea of who the real Canadian was and how the real Canadian was getting fucked over and the real Canadian wasn't going to take it anymore. Is the way through this to pretend like that didn't happen or that it wasn't us or that it was somehow imposed upon us or to accept that that is with us? Yes, it's heavily influenced by American media as everything here is. But it's real. It's true. Those people exist and we cohabitate this country and we're not, they're rejecting the mythology uh, and they're rejecting the personification of that mythology, Justin Trudeau, because they reject him as empty and, and, and as proof that those ideals and that myth is empty. Mm-hmm. So look, I think you're absolutely right that these forces are part of Canadian political life. Of course, there are plenty of Canadians here that want to say that that we, us, defined in terms of race, religion, ethnicity, language, however you want to define it, are the real ones and the rest you can get the hell out. Of course, that's a real political force. And I don't think I'd ever deny that. But I guess there are a couple of things that I want to say in response. The first is I still am really struck by the way in which there's this sort of contradiction in terms in, in the Canadian far right and the way it presents itself, which is I'm just blown away by how much it both wants to embrace this sense of, of Canadianness and Canadian identity, and yet does it through the use of symbols that are overwhelmingly derived from the international and mainly the U.S. far right. And I think that's a contradiction in terms that we can and should call out. You know, the other day I saw one of those uh, giant uh, pickup trucks with an F. Trudeau sticker on it and also a, uh, a Punisher flag. I see all those Punisher flags in the U.S. all the time, which are sort of a symbol of uh, rah-rah for police violence, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Now, in the U.S., uh, it's decorated like a, uh, a an American flag. Well, I saw a Punisher flag on the back of a pickup truck uh, decorated in a Canadian flag. And I guess part of the reason I see that as a contradiction in terms is not that, like, you know, Punisher flags aren't Canadian or authentically Canadian, because what, what does that even mean? But it's, it's the symbol that is derived from another political culture. It gets a kind of... You know, the paint swapped out and pasted on a new pickup truck that, that's made in one of the same factories that makes that U.S. pickup truck. And I guess I have a hard time seeing the right in Canada try to make a case for its sort of authentic nationalism while using these symbols that are um, very transnational and, and many times American. Yeah. They're, they're laying claim to being the real Canadians while their, their, their shtick is just so lame. It's just, it's just a completely borrowed and reapplied yeah. shtick. Yeah, I mean, bro, you just changed the paint on it, and I just, yeah. <laughs> so when you say stigmatize it, I mean, that probably is the place to start. Like, it's almost like more persuasive than uh, on the grounds that we should be going the other way. It's just like, let's have some made-in-Canada fascism. I mean, like, you know, get, get some creativity, for, mm-hmm. for God's sake. I'll say this about Americans. They will call themselves Democrats. Mm-hmm. They will call themselves Republicans. We don't say that, like, unless you're like into it. I'm a proud capital C conservative. I'm a proud member of the Liberal Party of Canada. You're really talking about a hobby of a minority in Canada, whereas it is part of American political culture. You talk about the disappearance of the public sphere and how, you know, we have arguably a better one to preserve. I don't know about that, man. Like, you know, it's hard enough in the States to get people to care about news, our job here is to get that news reading, listening audience to care about Canadian news. And that audience would rather pay attention to American news. The public sphere in Canada is incredibly weak. You were talking earlier about how like, you know, yeah, people showed up and labor showed up to fight Doug Ford. I have often thought that Americans will show up and fight back a lot harder than Canadians when push comes to shove, because while the general consensus might be center-left. It's soft center-left. And it's almost more oriented towards American issues, center-left. 
And center-left is not a movement. It's just kind of like a vague sense of yourself as having better health care. And, you know, like, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll put up with higher taxes for that. Mm-hmm. No, I think that that's exactly – I think that's why it, it's – I'm trying to galvanize people that they need to keep showing up like that because, yeah, if you say what you will about American political dysfunction, one thing that has been really heartening and impressive to me is how much Americans have shown up and fought back. Um, I was at uh, – I, I want to say it was um, – it was one of the New York airports. It was LaGuardia or JFK on the uh, day Trump announced the the infamous uh, Muslim ban. And people showed up and turned out. People rode the subways there. People um, were there to uh, demonstrate against uh, the these religiously bigoted immigration restrictions that, that came in you know, a couple of days after Trump took power. Uh, and I was really proud to be a part of that and show up. You know, of course, it, it was a long struggle to push back against that. And that didn't make anything happen overnight. But one of the things I think comes out in the book is that although I'm really critical of how American political culture has got to this point, in many ways the heroes of my book are people uh, like W.E.B. Du Bois who have pointed out uh, the dynamics that have pushed American politics in these authoritarian directions and the people that have been been at the forefront of the freedom struggle, especially in America, uh, the black freedom struggle, which is where a lot of impetus for American democracy comes from. And yeah, Canada has a different history. And Canada, I think, rightly or wrongly, sees itself as a place where we don't need to you know, fight back quite as much and in the same way. I do think that's going to change. You mentioned this, this question of myths a second ago and also sort of in connection with are, are we going to have a conservative government? And, you know, it's not really going to matter what story people tell about themselves when the conservatives are in power or running things. And I guess that's true. But part of the way I'd push back is by saying you know, you know, the stories we tell about ourselves, the myths we tell about ourselves – aren't just things that we can make up. They have to have some kind of grounding in material reality. So if we can kind of shift them, you know, one way of shifting the story that's plausible to tell about ourselves is, you know, shifting material conditions, shifting the kind of stories it's possible to tell. So, you know, again, I'm encouraged by the, the turnout against Doug Ford when he tried to wipe out a major provision of the Charter for collective bargaining rights. And I guess I'm encouraged by that because, you know, Canadians didn't show up for that because they just had a better story about themselves. They showed up because of the conditions that made it possible to have a higher unionization rate in this country, a significantly higher unionization rate in this country than the U.S. So that's just, just one example that stories that, that can be supportive of democracy don't come out of nowhere. They, they don't just come up because we would like to have them. They have to have some kind of grounding in, in reality. Um, so I do think that's where we get into the concrete issues. That's do, that is where we get into the fact that we are going to have a conservative government in this country sometime very soon, you know, maybe in the next election, maybe in the election after that, but in a virtually two-party system. That's guaranteed to happen at some point in the future, or at least it should, because you know, alternation in power is, is the lifeblood of a two-party system. If the polling is correct, it's going to happen within the next two years. For sure. So I think the question is not, you know, is Canada ever going to be governed by conservatives? It's what kind of constraints and barriers and... Um, you know, people being willing to stand up and get in the streets to protect those public goods, are they going to face when they're in power? So I guess one thing that I'd like to come from this is galvanizing people a little bit to say that American politics didn't get to this point simply because of Trump. Trump is much more a symptom than a cause. American politics got to this point because of decades and decades of ordinary, normal, respectable politicians um, generally you know, using dog whistles and saying the quiet part quietly instead of the quiet part loudly, doing these things to erode the sense of the public good in America, you know, since the era of, of neoliberalism, since the Reagan era. So 
Um, Canada's had much the same thing. We, we have a center left that, that, that's very sort of milquetoast when it comes to defending these things. But we're going to face a renewed assault on these public goods. It's going to happen probably in a couple of years. And we better be ready for it because, you know, we can't just say patting ourselves on the back that, you know, well, we have a conservative government that, that's undermining our, our, our schools and our health care and privatizing and selling off parts of the universal health care system. Well, but at least they're not being explicitly racist. And at least they're not putting a Muslim ban in. And, and at least they're not threatening to build a wall or whatever it is. I guess what I'm saying is focusing on these outrages and focusing on the, the norm breaking and focusing on the things that make Trump so uniquely and disgustingly ugly is a bit of a red herring because we're going to have to focus on the things that degrade democracy in a much more sort of understated, less visible kind of you know, Canadian way. And if we're not aware of these things as we come and if we don't get in the streets and stand up to them immediately, the first chance that they happen – then the next conservative government is going to do a lot for democratic erosion, not necessarily because they do things like lie about election fraud and overturn elections and disenfranchise people, but because they do a kind of softer disenfranchisement, the, the disenfranchisement that gives people fewer public goods to, to rally around together and practice democracy on, on a small-scale local level. That's just as important, if not more important, than the super dramatic stuff we see in the U.S. You know, this stuff in the U.S. wouldn't be happening if it hadn't been for you know, a, a good run of several decades of softening up that made Trump possible in the first place. This episode is brought to you by the Douglas Mattress, a mattress that is trusted by more than 150,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Over 150,000 Canadians have had the experience of having a mattress shipped to their door in a box, and they have all avoided the irritation, annoyance of going to some big box store and trying on a mattress there, which is weird. This is the way to do it, folks. It is a comfortable mattress. It has a medium firm feel. It is made in this country. I've tried this mattress. I can tell you personally, I found it to be super comfortable and at such an affordable price point. Check it out. It's because you listen to this podcast that Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle valued at up to $650 with every mattress purchase. Get those sheets, those pillows, the mattress and pillow protector free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Searching for something to grasp onto that is more meaningful than Zed or Timbits and more meaningful than slightly less shitty than America, there was something I read in your book that resonated with me. And it's a complicated idea because it's still kind of in contrast to America or directly in contrast. But this notion you write about that American politics is a constant struggle over who constitutes the people, we the people. And in Canada, our politics deny that there is such a thing as the people at all, or, or back to this idea of the real Canadian. On the one hand, I, 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 I could push against that because I think that it's been very clear to the Canadian establishment for a long time what a real Canadian is. It's male over female, and it's like white over any other color, and it's Protestant over Catholic or any other religion, and it's Anglo over over Francophone, and you know, like there's there's a very specific idea of who the you know who Canada was built by and for, um, and yet you know you, you write convincingly that. There has just always been this tension. There have always been different groups who are saying, no, I'm the real Canadian. I'm the real. And, and maybe less so than in the States has anyone really been able to, like, solidify that idea to the exclusion of everybody else. You quote John Ralston Saul, who, who puts it in a way that I hadn't thought about it before, that Canada does have something that is uniquely Canadian and 
uh, specific to us, which is a non-racial idea of civilization that is non-linear, even non-rational, based on the idea of an inclusive circle that expands and gradually adapts as new people join us. That struck me as true. Like, I don't have a sense that, like, you tell me you're an American, you were a speechwriter in American politics, and now this is your, I'm like, I'm fine with that. You know, I, I meet people who've just arrived here, and I'm like, like I, ha- I have no resistance. I really don't feel any resistance. I don't consider myself more Canadian than, than they are. And I, I think that's how a lot of people feel here. Saul writes, and you quote, that this way of thinking about civilization is not Western. It's not a European concept. It comes straight from Aboriginal culture. And that what is unique about the Canadian nation state or Canadian nationalism or even Canadian patriotism is an indigenous idea that we can constantly expand what we are to include more people. That might sound Pollyanna-ish or uh, idealistic, but it's a pretty good ideal. It's a pretty good mythology. And and it doesn't seem like one that's, uh, it might be mythology, but it doesn't seem like a fantasy. I think you're right to pull that out. I want to give a shout out to Saul's book, uh, A Fair Country, Telling Truths About Canada. Uh, it really helped me think about where the aspects of Canadianness that I have come to value have come from. And I think that he is right to point out that the way that these ideas developed and became a part of Canadian political culture was through the the encounter between European settlers and indigenous political thought and indigenous political ideas that have been incorporated into the story that Canadians tell about themselves in a way that I don't think they've necessarily been incorporated into the American story. Again, that doesn't mean that Canada's history uh, of, of colonization or settlement is is any better or any less awful than the story that, that every settler colony around the world has had to tell. But I think what Saul points out is the way in which there's a counter-narrative and there's a counter-story. I think another person that expresses this idea really well is, is the historian at uh, University of Toronto, Peter Russell, where he calls Canada a, a country of incomplete conquests. It's not as if the Canadian settler population has never dreamed of imposing an idea of what it means to be a real Canadian on the rest of the country. It's not as if that's never been a part of our political culture. But because of, of, of political realities... It just didn't succeed. It didn't, didn't succeed. And that right. doesn't... Yeah, that doesn't mean you're better. It just means you've had a we little historical luck. You've been worse, worse at it. it. Yeah. And then sometimes, like, you take the you luck go, where you can get it. You go to Quebec and you're like, nothing like this in the rest of North America. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it would get homogenized and stamped out and, and it would, you know, like, Louisiana's pretty cool, but it's not Quebec. Yeah. Canadianness can incorporate many different nations, many different histories, many different founding stories, many different peoples. Uh, you know, the U.S. is an extremely diverse country, too. The U.S. has, has diversity. The U.S. has multiculturalism. The U.S. has multiple histories. But I think that there's this sense in Canada that I have grasped in the time that I've lived here that there isn't just one story, that there are many peoples and nations that trace their history back in completely different and incompatible ways. And somehow we make it work and somehow that that's okay. All those multiplicities in America still all somehow bow down to America, and they might define that a little bit differently. But we don't here, and that's back to the catch-22, that the the distinctiveness is in the lack of nationalism, mm-hmm. that, that, our, that our nationalism is that we don't have one. Uh, maybe that's enough? Well, I think the distinctiveness is in the the— willingness to not tell this monolithic story about who counts and who doesn't count, who founded the country and who didn't found it, who gets written into history and get written out of history. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea that you know, Canadians don't quite worship their founding figures in the same way that Americans do because 
one person's founding figure is, is another person's uh, enemy, is another person's uh, you know, historical villain. And I think that there's a little bit more recognition of the fact that you can't tell a monolithic story, that if you're going to tell a story about this country, it's got to take into account the perspectives of at least you know, what Saul calls uh, the, the founding pillars of this country, not just an Anglo story, but an Anglo, a French indigenous story uh, that are going to be completely incompatible with one another. Um, so I think the way we make it work, the way we, we have a, a, a kind of um, sense of identity uh, out of the absence of identity is not by glossing over the difference, but by saying the stuff that has to hold us together has to be material stuff. It, it can't be stories about this overwhelming sense of Canadian identity or the heroic Canadian founders that delivered us from the evil British Empire and all these sorts of bad things. Am I reading you correctly that when we go through this list of deficiencies that we don't have a foundational myth that everybody feels as strongly about or even knows to the same extent as the Americans. And we don't revere our founding fathers the same way. And we don't have a central idea of who is a real Canadian, that all of those deficiencies are actually strengths. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. So I mentioned in a lot of ways, one of the heroes of the book is uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, He's someone that I work on in my day job as a political theorist. And one of the really interesting ideas he had uh, in his book, uh, Black Reconstruction in 1935, was the idea of the psychological wage. Um, so how did he come up with this idea? You know, he was looking around at labor politics in the U.S. And he was looking around at the fact that it seemed as if black workers and white workers had a set of common material interests. And yet... Most white labor unions in the U.S. were, were not integrated. They were, they were highly racist. They were segregated. And most white workers and black workers weren't making common cause, even though when you know, every bit of kind of orthodox Marxist or, or leftist theory said that they should have. And the way Du Bois sort of squared the circle was by saying it's not as if um, the only wage that matters is the monetary wage you get paid. There's something called a public and a psychological wage. It's getting rewarded by being told that you're the main character, essentially. Getting the sort of places of honor in a society. I mean, they could be places of honor like having the nice drinking fountain or sitting at the front of the bus. They can be places of honor like seeing statues of your heroes in public spaces or and having your history. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or having your uh, history covered in school textbooks and all that. All these things are a wage. And I think that was the insight there, that there's a trade-off between what you give people in terms of material conditions and what you give people in terms of the immaterial story that you tell them when you make them feel good about being the main character. And the insight there is that if you pay people in stories, in esteem, in exclusivity, in these kinds of things that say you're the main character of this country and these other people aren't, that's real payment. They will accept, as a matter of fact, lower material wages, you know, the kind that come from not teaming up with people that you share interests with. They'll accept those lower wages and they'll accept a worse bargaining position because they want that position of exclusivity. So my point about Canadian politics and how it relates to this idea is not that, you know, these things don't exist in Canada because, of course, they do. I feel like I have to say that a lot. But in a country without this one founding figure, without this one founding myth, without this notion of consensus history where your history of the country might be someone else's history of genocide – all these things mean that it's a lot hard to pay a psychological wage in Canada. It's a lot hard to give people the sort of esteem and reward that comes from saying you're the main characters of this country's history. You're the figures that deserve places of honor and esteem and recognition. So if you can't do that, one, it makes it easier for people to uh, team up 
and make bonds of solidarity with people that don't look like them or sound like them or even speak the same language as them. And two, if you don't pay people in immaterial means, they're going to want to be paid in material means. They're going to want better wages. They're going to want better working conditions. Maybe they're going to want workplace democracy one day. They're certainly going to want a better safety net and public goods. If you can't pay people with cheap stories about who the main character is, you're going to have to pay them in a better way. So if it's the case that in Canada it's a lot harder to say who the main character of this country is, then that means that's an option that gets taken off the table. That means that there's more room to demand the kind of material things that actually make a measurable difference in people's lives. So I do think that those absences, the kinds of things that make it a lot harder to get a grasp on Canadian identity, at the end of the day really are strengths because they mean that what people want out of this country is not being celebrated for how wonderful they are and how central they are to the country's story and how they're the real Canadians and how they're the main characters. What they want out of this country is what everyone else wants. Dignity, better working conditions, better living conditions, better public goods. The less you have a monolithic story about your country, the more you have to pay people in the real hard currency of material goods. Well, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like it would be progress. Rob, thank you. Thank you. That is your Canada land. If you value this episode, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. If you become a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. We just released some incredible bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on our merch. You'll get invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But here's why people actually support us. More than 10,000 people support Canada Land because they want to be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. They want to keep our work free and accessible to everybody, and we want you to join them. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Go have a look now, canadaland.com slash join. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland, and our website is canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.